that Democrats think they have a chance to swing. Only one of those is in New York City, and we'll definitely discuss that in our second hour with a reporter who's been covering that race in southern Brooklyn. Uh, so we're looking at control of the state Senate. We're looking at the statewide races, though Democrats are heavily favored in all of those, but we're, those are still worth talking about. Uh, and we'll see if there's any surprises tonight, certainly. And then control of the House of Representatives. And again, whether Democrats can swing that one race again in New York City that we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. And I think nationally, as results come in, people will also be looking at the Senate, which smart money seems to suggest is going to remain in Republican hands, but many toss-up races there. And also 35, uh, sorry, 36 governorships up for grabs tonight, including some very interesting races that folks have been following in Florida, Georgia, and even as close as Connecticut. But our uh, conversation would be uh, boring if it were just Ben and I. So uh, luckily, uh, well, not that boring. Yeah. Uh, pretty exciting we're for okay. me. But, yeah, Okay. Um, we're lucky to have a guest with us, and that is Councilmember Jumani Williams of Brooklyn. Welcome, Councilmember. What's up, everybody? So why don't we start with the, the sort of the bad story first, which is the voting problems folks have been talking about in your voting yourself today and what you've heard from constituents, others around the city. What are you seeing and hearing about that? I mean, the only good news is that we're not Georgia, uh, where they forgot to have the, uh, the plug to plug in the machine. So that's, I guess, a plus. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not much better, unfortunately, in some places. Uh, my uh, district actually had some increased uh, turnout, which is great, but my, uh, my voting was seamless. Did get a lot of reports of machines down early. We had some reports, uh, there were four machines, three were down, then it went to two. At one place where they said all were down for some time, and I'm learning this is happening all across the city. But you know, at some point it's unacceptable. You can't keep going through this every single election cycle. And it seems that no matter how much prep they do and know that this wave is coming of people who are going to vote, they the BOE just cannot get it right. And so we really have to look at that whole system and why they are just failing to prepare for people to be able to vote efficiently. Um, but also, uh, the state in Albany has to act. Some of these reforms that will allow people to uh, vote easier, vote earlier, um, and uh, vote at times, at different times than just this one set day will help ease the burden on the system, and those are things that we just have to get done, and hopefully uh, once the day is over and we actually have uh, the Senate in true blue hands, uh, we can get some of that done. So talk a little bit more about that on the po political side of it and the results side. Uh, what are you looking at? What are you hoping for that uh, the results show tonight in New York? Well, one, well, one across the nation, I hope well, we get at least the House and Congress. Um, it, you know, we'd love to get the Senate, as, as was mentioned. Uh, that's not the most likely, but hey, maybe we will. Congress, it, it looks like uh, that's a possibility. There's some state, there's some, obviously, some districts here in the city, uh, from Max Rose to Lubia Gretchen Shirley uh, to Nate Murray, uh, there, uh, Antonio Delgado. There's a lot of seats that can help to that. So we want that to happen. Uh, my hope is that across the nation, there's just a repudiation of Trump, um, and not just him, but the people who are supporting him and the message. There's also obviously some governor's races from Andrew Gilliam, uh, Stacey Abrams, and Ben Jealous across the nation we're looking at. And right here, we want uh, Tish James to make history as the first uh, black and first elected woman uh, attorney general in this state. And so we're looking forward to that. I'm requesting people vote on the working family party line, uh, but even more locally, 
We want a true blue state Senate, and we, it's been a while uh, since that has been, and uh, we've seen some blockages of so much policy that actually most people in the state agree with, like early voting, like uh, voting reform. Um, housing is going to be critically important. The rent regulations are up for renewal, and too often the Republicans really, many of them have no rent regulated units in their district, but they're blocking the reforms. Uh, that is going to be critical uh, to the housing issues going on uh, here in the city. Uh, and when it comes to uh, reforms, whether it's bail reforms, uh, legalizing marijuana, there's a lot of things that are coming up and have been blocked for far too long. Do you think that the uh, Senate majority that might emerge from tonight, if it is Democratic, is going to have the kind of unity that it hasn't in the past? There's some question about that. Obviously, we had the Independent Democratic Conference was a barrier to that in years past. That's gone now. But there have been episodes during this election of groups of senators being asked to align themselves with Governor Cuomo on things like congestion pricing or, or rather having New York City pay, its, pay a share of uh, MTA expenses. Uh, will it be United Caucus, or has the governor kind of segmented off some of those folks already? You know, I saw, I saw, um, uh, I didn't read the entirety, but uh, uh, Errol Lewis, I had, from what I read, had a great um, story today. I think it was in the Daily News, and basically telling those of us who have been pushing for this blue wave to not let up. And so we can't let up on the people who get elected from the governor to the state senators. Uh, we sometimes, and we saw this uh, with President Obama sometimes, but we get excited and we vote and then we walk away. We cannot do that. And as an elected official, I know what elected officials respond to. They respond to people. They respond to the pressures. We can't let go after what I hope is victories today in the, uh, in the blue wave but, uh, because the governor uh, is a professional at what he does. He's groomed to be a politician. He does that very well. Um, I'm happy to expand on that even more <laughs> after the election because we want to make sure people uh, get in there and vote what they're supposed to do on the work of family party. I don't want to dissuade anyone. Uh, but we do have to hold him in particular accountable for the things that he's saying he wants to do and hold the Senate accountable for holding the line and not letting the governor come in and play the games that he's known to play. On that subject, those in the city who've been pushing for a Democratic control of the state Senate, who have a long list of priorities, have to look ahead and recognize if there is a, a Democratic majority in the Senate after tonight taking office in January that several of those members are likely to be Long Island, upstate, and that they have some different concerns and different priorities and also perhaps tighter elections coming up in just another two years that they want to keep those seats. Are you ready uh, to compromise? Are you ready to you know, be the you know, activist politician that you talk about being and, and helping lead to keep that pressure on people, but also being willing to compromise with, with folks from Long Island and upstate that might have some different needs? To get things done electorally, um, um, policy-wise and legislatively, I should say, not just electorally, legislatively, you just have to compromise uh, on bills and things of that nature. I've passed 50, I think I'm 51 pieces of legislation. You can't do that without speaking to a lot of people. And so the legislation you originally put in very often doesn't look like the legislation that comes out. What I try not to compromise on is my principles. Uh, and then that's, that's something I plan on compromising. But piece of legislation and policy, you can find ways for everyone to feel okay with a piece of legislation. Uh, unless somebody is just completely wrong and hurting people, then you have to move forward. I've had reason to uh, travel the state recently. and. 
I actually did learn a lot. And a lot of the issues that we're dealing with downstate, they are actually dealing with in other parts of the state as well. There is this kind of New York City, everyone else divide, and we do have to conquer that. But on an issue like housing, there is a very real need for rent regulation across the state, not just here in New York City. Many people might not even know across the state. They don't even have the protections we have, which are not enough here in New York City. There are people who can be evicted uh, without causes at all. And so people upstate are looking for just cause legislation, meaning if you're going to evict someone, you should have a just cause. So combine, and there is an upstate, uh, downstate alliance that is forming now. So getting these issues and combining them, I think is so powerful. I didn't even realize uh, the the, uh, CFE and the the, the schools that haven't been underfunded is across the state. Transportation is a huge issue across the state. It happens to be here uh, in the MTA. Uh, In Buffalo, I think it's called NFTA, their public transit system. And if it's not public transit, it is the money they need for the roads to travel. So if we find ways to uh, combine these, uh, to talk about these issues in a combined way, what I found the differences are generally uh, what is the economic driver in that area and uh, what is the local government structure in that area uh, that helps, that prevents these things from getting accomplished, but a lot of the overarching issues are very similar, and we have to do a better job of, of lining those up. You're listening to Max and Murphy on 99.5 FM WBAI and Election Night Special. We're here with Council Member Jumani Williams of Brooklyn. You alluded just a moment ago to your statewide campaign this year. You ran for Lieutenant Governor. That campaign ended on the night of the Democratic primary. I'm curious, looking at the race as it's evolved since then, do you think you had an impact on it? And how did it feel to vote for the woman who defeated you as the running mate of, of Governor Cuomo and to vote for Cuomo himself, whom you did have some pretty strong critiques of? Um, one, I just thank everyone who's listening who voted for me. Did you vote for them, first of well, all? Well, I'll get to that. That's uh, <laughs> <Hey>, true. <laughs> Way we, to bury uh, the lead, Murphy. We actually, um, for those who don't know, we got more votes in that race uh, than any other non-white candidate ever in a statewide primary, and I was very proud of that, and we also won New York City. I think both Cynthia and I had huge effects on the conversation that was happening on that time and the things that Andrew Cuomo says that he wants to do now. Uh, I voted for the Working Families Party candidates. That's what I decided to do. Uh, they are on the Working Families uh, Party line, and so I voted row E. Uh, so the answer to your question is yes. Uh, my criticism still exists. They're very real. Uh, they don't change just because the election is won or lost. So what we now have to do, hopefully everyone will vote on Working Families Party, is continue to keep the pressure on and raise those criticisms. What I found is that very often people are afraid to talk about those issues in open. And we have to have more folks that uh, are not, I can, I will never say don't be afraid, but have the courage to match that fear so that we can hold these folks accountable. What I'm hoping, the one thing that my race showed is that we don't have to just go along to get along. That people are actually hungry for someone to stand up and say, uh, the people of New York City and New York State are suffering, uh, and our elected officials should be held accountable in the job they said they're going to do. If you voted all the way through the WFP line, that means you voted for yourself for state senate. Is that? I, is, I did not. I oh, voted in Blake Morris okay. uh, for state senate. Okay, could be. Uh, folks should know, as as some probably do, that after the primary. 
uh, Councilmember Williams was moved off of the Working Families Party uh, Lieutenant Governor nomination and into a state Senate race. That's one of the ways you sort of get around some of the ballot issues in New York and some of this fusion voting. Uh, that's conversation for another time. Uh, and if you're in Coney Island, uh, don't vote for the Working Families Party for assembly. You vote for Matilde Frontis for assembly. Okay. And so you mentioned this this belief that you have that that you and Cynthia Nixon impacted the debate, where things are headed in the state, the governor, lieutenant governor, where they're headed in a likely next term. What are a couple of specific ways where you feel like you had that influence? Because this is something I've debated with people. There was this, you know, so-called Cynthia effect, which I think, you know, loops you into into that um, in theory. But I'm not sure I've really seen it. And so what's your What's your theory on the Cynthia Jamani effect? Well, I would say you did see it in Governor Cuomo's responses to things like uh, marijuana, um, some of the lefty issues that people were pushing. All of a sudden, he was agreeing with things that I hadn't heard him agree with before. Now, that's before election. So I do have to agree. I haven't seen it yet post-election. He has uh, done and agreed things before. And without being held accountable, um, we... Uh, we haven't seen it happen. I do want to say we don't want the governor's mansion to go into Republican hands, so I want to be very clear about that. I would say for my election, most people had no idea uh, about the lieutenant governor's office or who was running, and so I think people are now talking about what that office could and should be. Uh, so uh, we, I think we elevated just the presence of a lieutenant governor, what it can mean for the state, and my hope is that some of the things I brought forth of what that office can be will be received by uh, the Lieutenant Governor Hochul, and that she will in turn uh, not just be someone who says yes to everything that's rolled out, but really be vocal and holding accountable to what those, those election time promises were. Let's bring it really local and also to a level of wonkishness uh, that we're familiar with here on Maxim Murphy, which is to talk about the, the ballot questions, uh, because they really do go to, you know, the operation of democracy and, and how inclusive it is. Uh, but there's been some good debate about them. Three questions. Number one, uh, reducing the levels of uh, campaign donations permitted. Number two, creating the citywide uh, civic engagement commission. And number three, the term limits for community board members. How did you personally vote on those? I voted yes, no, no. Uh, I voted yes because uh, I think the more we can take – look, my race on the state is probably the best example of why they don't want public financing in the state. Um, if we had just $50,000 more, we probably would have won, um, and that's why we need it. We have to, I wouldn't have been a council member uh, as a community organizer without uh, campaign finance. And so you want to have an array of experiences and an array of voices in government. The best way to do that is campaign finance, and it helps take big money's uh, undue influence away. Uh, the second one, I believe, actually both of them, I actually believe in the concepts. Um, and it's the civic engagement, I think, is hugely important. I didn't like uh, that the, the mayor would have basically 50% plus one majority. That means if all of the borough presidents and the city council disagreed or agreed, the mayor has all the votes anyway. So we really had to talk about how to make that really more democratic and, and, and spread the power of the office uh, a, little, a, a little better. And the third one, I actually, uh, some of the people who voted no are opposed the terminals for community boards. I am not, uh, as of right, I actually think it's a good idea to explore. Eight years is just not enough time. 
So we're going to offer folks, we're just going to take a couple questions for the council member, but if one or two people want to come up to the mic on the side here and ask council member Williams a question or two, or even make a short uh, comment for, for him or us to respond to, uh, now's the time to work your way up, but only a couple people, please. Um, so as you are um, looking ahead to, to tonight's results, um, you mentioned the possibility of public advocate Letitia James making history, becoming the attorney general. Um, one of the things that, of course, you've already made clear is that you have some intention for running for public advocate if she is indeed successful as she is, is favored to be. Do you want to give folks listening, folks in the room here, um, your sort of 30-second rationale for pursuing that position if it becomes open? If and when uh, Tish James makes history, I plan on uh, being a, an official candidate for public advocate. I, I actually uh, hadn't planned on it when I when I lost that night. Um, I had a plan if I won. I had a plan if I lost. It was not run a public advocate. I didn't plan on win-losing, which is kind of what happened uh, that night, and so I rethought everything. I went around the state actually using the public advocate's office as an example of what I thought the lieutenant governor's office can be. And uh, people were very receptive to that, even in places where they had never heard of what the public advocate's office was. And so it makes sense now that the actual office is available, the one I've been using for example, uh, why not go ahead and throw my hat in that ring and use it the way I think people intended it to be used. I'm not running for mayor. I'm not going to try to springboard it uh, to run for mayor. I believe a lot of the issues that people care about, I've been in that kind of public advocacy role as a council member on so many issues, and not just as a voice, but effectively through legislation, through policy, through budget, had a real impact. And so uh, many folks uh, uh, compliment and say that you know this office was descriptive of the work I've been doing, and so it seems to me to make sense. You've got a question. Go ahead. Quick question for the Steve council Waver, Bronx, New York. A friend of mine asked Letitia James while she was public advocate, okay, about uh, unemployment and uh, really employment issues both and uh, housing in particular. And she said after a while it seemed like nothing happened with Letitia James after hearing this from her. Does the issues get lost in the source and the larger political constituent or about the issues when we look at the larger picture because there's no answer coming from Letitia James that is one person in particular. So named Pamela Page, a friend of thank mine. Thank you. That's a good question. Th thank That's you. Yeah. So, so I, I would, as a I, council member or a potential yeah. public advocate. Yeah. I, I would say I wouldn't put that all on, on Tish. She's actually been pretty vocal on these issues. But I would put it on just a whole lot of elected officials, including myself. Um, and voters have to hold us responsible for the things that we say we're going to do very often and too often that doesn't happen. We get excited, we vote, and we walk away. And many of us say some nice things in the camera and we go in another room and do something else. But, um, the biggest issue that when I run I want to deal with is affordability, housing in particular. I've been working on this issue for uh, over, 20, over 20 years. The, the, number, the two things I get asked the most actually about is employment and is housing. Those are the two toughest things to deal with. But there are some things that we are not doing. The city council and the mayor, I believe, uh, uh, failed when it came to some zoning proposals that came a few years ago, mandatory inclusionary housing. We're not using all the tools that we can. We're now trying to overlay some of those things. But I think we need to reopen it and just make it official. Uh, Councilmember Ralph, uh, Councilmember Salamanca actually has a bill in the city council now to try to make some changes to some of those zoning proposals. As I mentioned, um, the, the um, 
rent laws are up now, so we really have to pay attention to that on the city and the state level. Uh, and the biggest thing that we can do is preserve the housing that we have. The, we will not, we can't build faster than we're losing. And also my hope is that at some point, there is a real joining of the homelessness and housing problem. The answer for homelessness is housing, but we have two separate plans, two separate commissioners, two separate deputy mayors. We really have to think about this all in one. Hi. We'll go to another question. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, my name is Anya Brew. I'm from Brooklyn. Um, my question is, regardless of the outcome of the primaries, you still seem to have a lot of energy and conviction. So where does that come from? <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I get it from my mama. Uh, um, answer, answer. You know, I think uh, the most high, uh, you know, uh, my mom really uh, has been a great example. Uh, she raised two knucklehead children by herself. Um, I'm including one. I have Tourette's syndrome, ADHD. None of those things were allowed to be excuses. Um, I had trouble going through school. They, my, the, my nickname was Needs Improvement and Promotion in Doubt uh, throughout, throughout school. And I still had to power my way through that. Whether uh, Seven years to get my four-year degree, four years to get my two-year degree, and then just kept through and th keep going. So perseverance was a big thing and, and a big lesson. But also, I sometimes think I'm just uh, obsessive. <laughs> and so when I see something that I know can happen, like, we should just do it. It's, it frustrates me that we can't just get it done. And I understand that the systems we talk about aren't metal. They're people. They're human beings that are making decisions. We are allowing them to continue to make those decisions. We are the same ones that can force them to make different ones. And that takes time, it takes energy, and I don't want to fall on out of those. All I want to be able to do is I'd say I did all that I could with what I had where I was. So a last question. We're on a night where we're focused on both state and national politics. Uh, the mayor and the city's agenda always comes up in that conversation and the question of whether the mayor is sensible in trying to create a national movement, a national pack, being a player on the national scene. Do you think Mayor de Blasio has been successful at all at playing on that? on that platform? Do you think that he is distracted by that national work from what he needs to do in the city? How would you grade him on his performance in terms of bringing the city's agenda to the national stage? What I would say, there's a whole lot of issues here in the local level uh, that I believe have not been attended to properly. And there have been things that many of us, like myself, supported this mayor to do, we have not seen done. Uh, when it comes to housing, there's many areas where there, the ball was completely dropped. When it comes to policing, there are some good things that have happened. Uh, we have to complete the retrainings, obviously the reducing the stop questioning frisk. He gets an A plus at how we're now trying to address uh, gun violence. But when it comes to transparency, uh, we have gone backwards. When it comes to police accountability, we are the same and so there are uh, huge issues gaping areas that it's it's stunning when I when I hear that the administration is um, um, uh, not uh, is a uh, not uh, appealing the verdict for Mohammed Ba uh, who was civil court gave Muhammad Ba's family a civil judgment. Why are you appealing that? Uh, Detective Edwin Raymond is not being allowed to become a sergeant in the NYPD because he stood up uh, and said there were abuses in the department, because he stood with uh, uh, Kaepernick. These are things that I expected from the Bloomberg-Kelly administration, not from this one. And so I still consider myself an ally, but I'm not going to sit by and not raise my voice when it needs to be raised. 
could make things interesting for a potential public advocate uh, office. Uh, we're going to take one more question for the council member before we get you out of here. Go ahead. My name's Madeline. I'm from Staten Island. And I was wondering, what are some roadblocks you have faced and how have you overcome them? SI in the house. Uh, yes. Shaolin. Uh, I mean, it's one of my biggest strengths when I first came in, I was very much always underestimated. Uh, I never really looked like a council member. Uh, I have earrings. I had locks. I reek of Brooklyn wherever I go, and I just love hip-hop. And so I think people used to underestimate a lot of things um, that I, I knew I could accomplish. Uh, it's different now. I'm actually trying to get used to that space. But um, I'm used to running uphill with a lot of wind against me with weights on. Um, and in this public advocate race, people are trying to put me in, a, in another kind of bucket. I'm not used to that. I don't want to be in that bucket. So I want to remain uh, kind of just a guy always. I, I like, I'm used to running in the wind. Um, I think overcoming it, I, I'm not 100% sure. I do believe in the most high. I get a lot, of, a lot of strength from that. And I think similar to the question before, it's just understanding that it can be done. Like I never really, I never really understood no. When somebody said no, that means I need to speak to someone else because you either don't want to do it or you don't have the power to do it. And so uh, when I applied to grad school, uh, the first thing I got back was no. And I just figured they made a mistake. So I went in <laughs> and, and had a discussion with the person uh, from the department I wanted to get into. And we found a way to make it work. I had to go in provisionally and a bunch of stuff. But I always, like, there is a way to do these things. We just have to figure it out and move forward. Well, Running Against the Wind is obviously the name of a fantastic Bob Seger song. <laughs> so you're not just a hip-hop fan, but... Uh, whatever the soundtrack. Thanks very much, Councilman Jamani Williams, for Thank joining you. us. Thanks please for being here. If you haven't, please vote. Please vote. So, we are we are going to be joined momentarily by Errol Lewis, uh, anchor at New York One, who many of you probably watch on your TVs. Uh, he's going to actually call in because he's hosting his show tonight from the New York One studios. But Errol's going to call in and just give us a few of his thoughts about things that he's watching uh, this evening and as he anchors the coverage tonight at New York One in terms of how the results come in. In the minute or two we have before we're joined by Errol, um, you know, I think it's very much worth noting that uh, as we discussed with Councilmember Williams, you know, Public Advocate Letitia James, who used to represent a Brooklyn City Council District, is obviously running now for Attorney General, could make history tonight as the first woman of color elected statewide. Uh, Keith Wofford, the Republican candidate for attorney general and others on the ballot uh, have certainly put up uh, a fight and nothing's done till the votes are counted. But of course in New York, uh, no Republican has won statewide since 2002 when George Pataki won a third term as governor. So uh, the deck is certainly stacked against Republicans in terms of voter registration and trends. Um, and so we'll see what happens with Letitia James tonight. And that, of course, if she is victorious, will open up uh, a topic for another time, but this fascinating special election for public advocate. just want to mention, as we're waiting for Errol Lewis to call in, I want to thank our hosts here at the Commons Cafe, the amazing staff behind the bar and in the kitchen. Let's give them a round of applause. They're working hard tonight. 
And our good friends at WBAI, especially Linda, Reggie, and Grayson, who are making this show possible. They're, they're worthy of gratitude as well. And if you like what you're hearing tonight, and let's face it, you do, uh, tune in on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. You can hear Ben and I do our regular shtick, which is just like this, only an hour shorter. Uh, and uh, all kinds of topics about the city and state. And moving from the election to what comes after is going to be really very fascinating this year. There's a lot going on in what otherwise is kind of a, quote, unquote, off year in, in city politics and, and for the state as well. Yeah, we're going to be shifting pretty quickly after the election to looking ahead to 2019. And, you know, Councilmember Williams touched on some of the issues that are at play for next legislative session in Albany, but it's truly a fascinating list of issues. You name the issue, there's something that's going to be coming up in Albany next year. Now, the Outcomes of tonight's election will very much determine what those conversations are like. If Republicans keep control of the state Senate, then it's very likely to be similar conversations that it has been are where are the compromises between Governor Cuomo, a Democrat who's very likely to win reelection, although again, votes need to be counted, uh, and a split legislature. Where is the governor prioritizing things that he can push through, and then where there's some compromises, and where there's some things that the Republican Senate refuses to to move on. If Democrats win the state Senate and there's full Democratic control at the state level, we're talking about something we haven't seen in the state really in decades because the last time that situation occurred, it quickly devolved into chaos in Albany about 10 years ago. So that's discussion for another time. But we're going to be shifting into that very quickly on Max and Murphy after Election Day. So uh, keep, keep those conversations in mind. And we would be remiss if we didn't note that we, uh, we have day jobs, and they are at GothamGazette.com and CityLimits.org. That's where you can find coverage of today's events, um, certainly some of the issues at play, and ongoing coverage of policy debates and politics at the city and state level after tonight. So make sure you tune in there. We're still waiting to get Errol Lewis on the line. I think we have Errol. Errol, are you on? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Great to have you with us. Yes, we can hear you here in Commons Cafe in Brooklyn, and we assume you're calling from your studio at New York One? Yes, indeed. In fact, um, um, we're going to, you know, we're taping a couple of things, and we're going to be live at 7. But, um, hey, first things first, how, how's the food there? How is the food here? Anybody eating? Mostly, yeah, I we're see... getting thumbs up. I see drinking. <laughs> okay, see, well, you know what? Drinking. The food's okay, but the beer is better, I'm told. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. So, so Errol, you're anchoring coverage tonight, obviously, as you often do and almost always do on election nights. This is obviously uh, quite a momentous election, as many of them are, but this one is obviously a fascinating one for a number of reasons. What are some mm-hmm. of the top things you're looking for as we, as we wait on returns tonight? Oh, boy. You want the local or the national? I'm looking at a little bit of everything. Start, well, um, start, start us national and bring us local. Okay. Um, nationally, there's going to be some early results out of um, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, if you want to get very technical, but uh, I'm really looking at Virginia, where um, there are a couple of districts, including the one that uh, includes uh, Charlottesville, where if there's going to be kind of a suburban uprising of former uh, swing voters or Trump voters, that's where I think we're going to see the first indications that something like that is happening out in the country. Um, there's a 13-point Democratic advantage in the generic poll. Um, that's kind of the closing number. That's a, that's a really good number for Democrats. But if they're going to have a good night, they've got to turn that sentiment 
into victories in at least 23 districts. So the first ones I'll be looking at are in uh, Virginia. Uh, I'm also really intrigued by some of the gubernatorial races. In the Midwest, there's this uh, phenomenon of several of these industrial Midwest states that went for Trump two years ago. Uh, the Democrats are poised to win in Wisconsin, in Iowa, in Michigan. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see if that happens. Pennsylvania as well. Um, if that happens, that, that tells you something, and possibly even Kansas. Um, that, 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 that tells you something about where things stand. And of course, it's critical because there's going to be a big reapportionment after um, the, the next census. So this could actually start setting the stage for what happens for the presidential race and for the next decade. Uh, and then down in the South, there's this trio of gubernatorial races in Maryland, Florida, and Georgia, uh, where there are black Democratic candidates running. And that's especially in Florida, where my mom's from and my wife's from, and I got a ton of family down there. I'm really interested to see if Florida is going to join the other so-called um, New South states, where a lot of the old racial animosity, a lot of the old disenfranchisement, um, a lot of the cultural uh, issues that, that really just kind of kept the state back for so long. Uh, it's possible that they may be getting past that, and we'll we'll see if Andrew Gillum can can pull out a victory tonight. That would be a, a really interesting step forward. Errol, when the results come in, I wonder, do you feel they'll be generally accepted? I mean, out of the 16 election, we obviously had the questions about Russian interference, and also President Trump saying that he would have won the popular vote had it not been for illegal, uh, unauthorized immigrant voters. Uh, <laughs> right. in, lead up to, in lead up to this race, you have the amazing situation in Georgia of the Secretary of State, who's also the Republican candidate, accusing Democrats of hacking roles, um, the prevalence of conspiracy theories uh, basically everywhere. Do you feel as though we're in a position where the results of these elections can still be broadly accepted? Well, I mean, I think broadly, yes. There will be candidates and there will be political figures, and the president could be one of them, um, who may say anything. You know, I mean, who will say the migrant caravan that's a thousand miles from the southern border, they were coming by foot and they somehow got here and voted today or something crazy like that. Uh, there are also... Um, well-meaning people who feed into conspiracy theories by confusing inefficiency uh, or, frankly, incompetence with um, a conspiracy. We see some of that, frankly, in New York. There are a lot of people who are going to conclude that some malevolent force screwed up all of our elections today when I think we all know that the Board of Elections needs no help, uh, guidance, or conspiracy to screw everything up, which I think is what happened today. <laughs> Right, and we uh, we touched on that at the at the top of the show is unfortunately one of the biggest themes here of election day. Uh, you know that instead of just focusing on the candidates and the races and the results and what they mean for policy and where we're heading, that we have to again discuss quite a bit around election administration here in New York uh, and and elsewhere is a, is a sad thing. Uh, you mentioned a couple, a few of these races for governor, and we do want to bring you to to what you're watching in New York right after this, mm. but. Um, 
how do you handicap sort of the, the lay of the land there? It seems like Andrew Gillum has a pretty good shot in Florida. Um, mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams, maybe not so much. Uh, right. What's your what's your take? Yeah, on I'd, say, I'd say in order of um, likelihood of winning, um, the polls suggest that it goes Florida, Georgia, Maryland. Uh, my friend Ben Jealous is going to have the hardest time of all in Maryland, even though he brought out some some really great celebrity endorsements from Dave Chappelle, who actually is a lifelong family friend of Ben Jealous's. Um, I think John Stewart got on the campaign trail for him, uh, but but it's a it's a tough state. It's a tough tough state. Um, the the numbers don't look to me don't look great in Georgia. There's a lot of I think um, maybe media driven uh, hopefulness around the, the the idea that neither candidate will get fifty uh, percent and they'll have to have a runoff in December on December fourth. Um, I, I I don't know if that's going to happen. That would be a very interesting outcome, obviously. Um, and then Florida, you know, out of the last 32 polls, Andrew Gillum was leading by at least um, a small margin in, in 30 of them. And uh, I think 538 gives him like a three chances in four uh, to win tonight. Uh, anything can happen. You never know. Um, th- there's rain not just in New York, but really across a broad swath of the South, including in Virginia. So that could throw off a lot of different results. Um, so there are a lot of unknowns that are out there, but I, I think Gillum has the uh, has the best chance, and it's and it's fascinating because he's running as an unabashed progressive. You know, he's talking about single payer. Um, he's talking about uh, raising taxes if necessary. He's talking about abolishing ICE, and he's led in the, in 30 out of 32 polls. It's a, it's astounding. You'd never think that that could sell, but the the right mix of policies, personalities. Um, and uh, and uh, an energized electorate may do the trick for him. And so with the minute or so we have left, Errol, what are you watching in New York State? A lot on the docket, but some races less competitive yeah. than others. What, what matters to you? We're, we're spending a lot of time looking at um, uh, New York 11, the congressional race in Staten Island and southern Brooklyn, in part because it overlaps with one of the more interesting state Senate races, where a few miles from you, uh, Marty Golden is getting what might be the toughest challenge he's ever received as a state senator. Uh, and uh, there, because there's overlap there, uh, Max Rose, the Democrat running in Staten Island and southern Brooklyn, is going to pull out a lot of Democrats. I mean, he's got a gigantic organization. They had something like 700 volunteers show up the other day. He's got to maximize, if he has any hope of winning, he has to maximize his vote in southern Brooklyn. And I think he's going to pull out every living Democrat in that area and uh, to the best of his ability, and that that is going to possibly make things really, really tough for Marty Golden. Um, Like everybody else, I'm going to be watching to see if um, the races out on Long Island and a few upstate uh, actually go into flip to Democratic um, uh, Senate control. I mean, that's really what it has to amount to. I think the Dems might lose one seat out on Long Island. And if they pick up at least two somewhere in the state, and they seem to be on track to pick up more than two, um, there'll be a new... Uh, state Senate in Albany, and they've the, 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 those Democrats have made a lot, a lot of promises, and all of us are going to be covering them to make sure that, at a minimum, people don't forget those promises. Um, but it, it really could um, make for a, a really interesting night tonight, and a lot of change in New York. There's about a decade's worth of pent-up legislation.
legislation that Democrats have been saying, if we only had control of the Senate, we'd get this passed, including electoral reform, by the way, you know, early voting yeah, exactly. and some other basic, some other really basic stuff. So, you know, we'll, we'll see tonight whether or not we're going to be entitled to um, to sort of call their bluff on this. Exactly. All right, Errol, we'll let you go. Uh, good luck anchoring tonight. And uh, obviously, lots of us here will be watching you later on and uh, seeing what these results uh, tell us about where we're heading in New York and nationally. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. And we're here on Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. Thank you for joining us. We are now joined by J.C. Polanco. How do you want to – you have so many titles. How, how, how would you like to be introduced? Um, I think attorney's fine. Attorney. Attorney J.C. Polanco. Okay, <laughs> but we're going to get into some of your other – former and current gigs and I think we should start with your work with the New York City Board of Elections yeah. so what was that job and tell us a little bit about what you've seen today and what that means to you well first of all thank you so much for having me um, I'm from the Bronx so I actually came all the way from the Bronx because when Jared says come over and he has been to support <laughs> you come from the Bronx we appreciate that I'm thank very happy to, thank you. happy to be here yeah I was a president commissioner at the New York City Board of Elections at a very pivotal time um, I was appointed by the council in 2007 and stayed on to about 2013 one thing I noticed about the Board of Elections I have to tell you um, I think it gets a very bad reputation. I mean, it was awful before I got in. It was only one of the worst things where I get appointed right at the time when we start switching from a lever system to a to a paper trail system. So I, you know, you have a target on you right as soon as you walk into the door. So the Board of Elections has had a problem for over half a century. Uh, the problems are arcane, um, and I think that it gets a very bad rap. And I, and unfortunately. It doesn't speak to the people that I've met, that I worked with for the thousands of hours I was there in the trenches. These people are phenomenal. They really are. I mean, you see them on Twitter. You see the attacks, and you may, you may hear some complaints, but it doesn't give you the full story of the thousands of people that dedicate all their time to make sure that people get an opportunity to come out and vote. I think there are a lot of problems with the Board of Elections. I think that those problems uh, have nothing to do with the members of the board, but with the state legislature. Uh, the state legislature should do something about early voting. I mean, I'm a Republican from New York City asking for early voting. You want to talk about unpopularity? <laughs> Seriously, it's just an unpopular thing to do, but having been there, there's no other way for us to ease these lines on election day other than to give New Yorkers the right to vote before election day. You have to do it. Last year when I ran for public advocate, I put out a plan that I think that really merits um, Albany taking a look at it because I think that if we were to allow for New Yorkers to vote before election day, you don't see these long lines today. Um, it, it, it allows for voters to be able to get those problems fixed before election day. I also think that we should have auxiliary sites outside of these poll sites. should have that available. In case one poll site system goes down, there's a backup right across the street that's ADA approved. So there's a lot of things that need to happen. All of it is coming from the state. Now I have to tell you, I know a lot of you guys are Democrats and that's fine. My mom's a Democrat. I love Democrats, as you know. Uh, uh, but I, got, I have to tell you, I mean, a lot of Democrats don't want to see early voting because they don't want the Ocasio-Cortez phenomena. They know that if you allow early voting in New York City and you're an incumbent Democrat, you are DOA primary day. Because if a person like Salazar, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a Republican from the Bronx, okay, 
All right, let's get that out of the way. So when you have Senator Dilan losing an election to someone like the soon-to-be Senator Salazar, it makes very little sense to me. Here you have someone with very little track record in the community, caught blatantly lying by the press repeatedly, runs from the press. You never run from the press. You take it, you take the hit. If you got caught, you admit it, you keep it moving. But runs from the press and still gets elected. Why? Because of this excitement behind young people moving into areas. A lot of people coming in from Iowa, North Dakota, want to be part of our communities. That's a wonderful thing. But these people are energized and they don't want to wait their turn. And I think that if you allow for early voting, a lot of these incumbents will lose their seats. So I know that when you think about early voting, most of the time, I know I do, I think, oh, Republicans don't want to have that happen. But I mean, we're dead here in the city. So not us. It's the Democrats that don't want to see the early voting happen. I think this is a time for you to call their bluff. Make it happen. So if you do see a blue wave and the Democrats take over most of the seats here in New York City and, and, across, and across the state, and you don't see early voting, you saw it was a big nonsense bluff and they did nothing about it. So you are a Republican, but you are not a Trump Republican. No, you've made a big point of, of establishing yep. that from the, from the get-go and you've called out uh, people like Congressman King uh, for his racism. So yes. that's the bent of Republican you are. Yep. Being that... Congressman King from Iowa. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, being that, uh, when you look at the race in New York State today, what do you want to see happen? Who should win? Who should lose? What would be, do you think, a good outcome, given that you come from a Republican Look, standpoint? If Mark Molinaro was a Trump Republican, I would not support Mark Molinaro. Mark Molinaro, like me, did not vote for Trump for the same reasons I didn't. I find him to be reprehensible. I cannot support Donald Trump. I mean, if Donald Trump was president of the United States in 2000 when I left the Democratic Party and became a Republican, I would have never, ever left. Are you kidding me? It's a nightmare. Imagine me. Here I am, president of the College Democrats at SUNY Albany, you know, having a great time in, in politics. And I see the light and I see the Republican Party has done wonderful things in my community. And they actually did. I grew, up from, I grew up in the hood in the Bronx where there were cardboard murals on the corner every week because of the crack epidemic and because of killings. And here I am as a young 13, 14 year old. And I see Mayor Giuliani come in, make a push to secure Hispanic support. I saw that with my eyes. I'm not making this up. And then I saw how, he, how the streets were clean simultaneously. No longer we're going to have the same crime. I associated safety the end of the drugs in my community, my friends no longer being killed, I associated that with the New York City Republicanism. And a lot of us did. So a lot of us become Republicans thinking it's a good counterweight to a majority city where it's an overwhelming, almost monopoly democratic rule for you to have a counterbalance. So let's become Republicans and make, a, make it happen and let's push this agenda forward. And then here comes Trump. And he says some terrible things about people that I love, just to, about Mexicans and African-Americans and transgender people. I just, it's not my cup of tea. It's really depressing, to, to be honest with you, because I don't think that it's, there's any room for us to be able to bring new voters into the, to the mix, not right now. So Mark Molinaro is the kind of guy that I saw as, a, as one, of the, one, of, one of us. Unfortunately, he's running in a party where Donald Trump is the head of this party. And, and, he's, and he's awful. And the way he talks about this caravan, caravan equals Hispanics that look like me. I know that. You know, This is a tough situation. So I think that if Mark Molinaro was in another situation, he'd be doing very well in the polls and there would be a very different story tonight. I wish he pulls it off. Um, I see a lot of people very excited about a potential super democratic majority in the state Senate. That concerns me and it should concern you. Before you, before you go really into that, should. You've worked in the minority for the state assembly. Yes. You, you've, are, are you still doing still that? Still there. Okay. So you took a break when you were running yep. for public advocate. You're back there. You're working with the assembly yep. Republicans. So you have just wanted to set that stage for folks listening. You have firsthand insights into the state legislature. Absolutely. So 
you're worried about full democratic control of the state. I'm very much worried. And I, and I speak, you know, and I'm not here as a, as a representative of the Assembly Minority Conference. I love the work we do there. It's important to be a counterbalance, such an overwhelming democratic uh, weight in the, in the state. But having said that, I think we should be concerned. I think that absolute power and monopolies are no good. I, I, I think that we should work against that because when you have that kind of absolute power, um, and the monopoly of power in just one party, it's very dangerous. It doesn't allow for a conversation to take place. It doesn't allow for different views to be represented. And when you look at Albany, Albany is a very New York City-centered um, city, believe it or not. I mean, the state capital from the speaker uh, to the Senate majority leader to the maybe soon-to-be attorney general uh, to all of the people up there. And now if, we make a, if you make a Senate Democratic majority, all these people are coming in from New York City. That's not good for the rest of the state. And I think it's important for us to have diverse views. So not only should we have geographic diversity, but I think it's important for us to have some sort of balance in Albany. So that when we have discussions about charter schools, when we have discussions about taxes, when we have discussions about voting, you have different views being presented and you can have some honest conversations. But if you just have a majority of, of just super liberal Democrats running every single level lever of government, I, I don't think anyone wins from that. I just don't. So there's a lot of follow-up questions we could ask you on that, but you have to hop off. Uh, when you are done with the other call you have to make, maybe we'll grab you back sure. on for a few more minutes. So uh, <laughs> Thank JC you. Polanco, thanks, thanks for joining us with a few thoughts. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. We're gonna we're gonna open we're gonna open, open it up for second. audience questions in a second. So that was J.C. Polanco, a Republican from the Bronx. He was the Republican nominee for public advocate last year against Letitia James, who of course is running for Attorney General uh, today. And uh, we're coming up toward the top of the hour, 6 p.m., which means polls have been open for about 12 hours in New York State. They're open for three hours more. You're listening to an election night special of Max and Murphy. Live from the Commons Cafe in Brooklyn with a live audience. Show us you're alive. There you go. Excellent. The vital signs are good. Let, let, let's take a minute. You know, JC had told us ahead of time that he had to hop off to, to make another media appearance uh, remotely. But let's take a minute and follow up what he was talking about there in terms of what's on the line here. Councilmember Jamani Williams, who led off the show with us, was talking a little bit about this from the very other perspective, right, about wanting full Democratic control of the state legislature and along with the Democratic governor and the types of things that have been promised. Errol Lewis, you heard calling in, referenced that there's this long list of policies that Democrats have been talking about and they might actually have the opportunity to follow through or to let people down, uh, however it may turn out. So let's just talk about a few of those. I mean, what, what's, what's sort of high on the list of things that you're watching? Uh, well, I am watching to see how Republicans do statewide, even in the statewide races where they're expected to get trounced. Um, you know, how how close is it? Mark Molinaro, Jonathan Trichter running for comptroller, uh, Keith Wofford running for attorney general. Uh, is it an absolute landslide or is it somewhat competitive? Uh, because even as uh, many of my friends are Democrats uh, and liberal Democrats, and I think even among some of them, there's a recognition that the lack of, of electoral competition uh, for Democrats in the vast majority of precincts in the city, and many of them in the state, is not necessarily good for that party or for the state in general. That a healthy politics requires some competition. Um, third parties don't appear to be providing that, although we'll find out tonight that that you know could be the case. And you and I heard on our show from Larry Sharp and.
and Howie Hawkins and Mark Dunley and Kruger Gallaudet and um, many of the third party candidates running for statewide offices. But whether the Republicans can mount some form of challenge to, to Democrats is, I think, a key question. And I think something particular that J.C. Polanco said, which is, I, I believe, to be absolutely true, is that there's a lot of Democrats who don't necessarily want electoral reform. And that's going to be one of the most interesting things to see if Democrats win the state Senate tonight, keep hold of obviously the assembly, which they will, and keep hold of the of the executive branch, which is very likely. But if they flip the state Senate, Democrats are saying that electoral and voting reform is at the top of the list. It, Senator Generis of the of Queens, when he joined us on our show a few weeks ago, that was one of the top three or four things he said is at the top of their agenda, if they get the majority and they have democratic control of the state, electoral voting reform, and maybe even campaign finance reform. And I do think there's quite a few Democrats who are not that gung-ho about it because right now they know the system, they know how to pull the levers, uh, so to speak, um, and they they would be worried a little bit about opening it up more to, as J.C. Polanco said, some of these energetic left-wing challengers who might find a few incumbents that haven't been doing that much and take them on. Well, starting with the Democrat who leads the party and their ticket, Governor Cuomo, he's been talking about LLC loophole reform for basically his entire time in office, including his time as a candidate in 2010. He has not moved forward with that. He blames the Senate. People blame him for the state of the Senate. He is the all-time biggest beneficiary of LLC donations by a landslide. Um, and he promises once again to tackle that this year. Uh, remains to be seen if he will, if he'll pursue that. There's a, a lengthy list, as Jamani Williams said, that includes things like the rent regulations that are expiring next year that largely, almost exclusively, have to do with New York City will be a huge battle. When Senator Generis joined us, he said that's very likely to wait until it's closer to expiring after the budget season in Albany. And that sort of sets up with some other issues, this two-tiered Democratic priority list. What are some of the things that will be done in the first few months of next year? Again, if they have the Senate, which when you look around at the atmosphere this year, it looks like that's pretty likely. So we'll talk about it as a, as a likelihood, although things could obviously go the other way. There are certain things that will be the top priorities for the first few months of the year by the time a state budget is due at the end of March. And then there'll be some things that are sort of kicked to the legislative session. Some of those things are things that don't necessarily have as much of a budget element to them. So that makes some sense. Although in Albany, very often, whatever policy they can sort of figure out some compromise around gets jammed into the budget, whether it has a budget element to it or not. But rent regulations are sort of at the top of the list for many in New York City, including Councilmember Williams, and something very much worth watching. But as I said earlier in the show, you could name virtually any issue from education to environment, criminal justice, health care. There are things on the table for the new year and things Democrats have been talking about that they might actually get the chance to move on. That's true. I mean, there's an advantage to being in the minority and the pressure in that the pressure is not on you and the pressure will definitely be on Democrats now if they control both houses of the legislature and all five statewide offices, including the two uh, U.S. Senate seats. Um, we are coming to six o'clock here on Max and Murphy, a special election edition. And I just wanted to talk about some of the headlines uh, that are being reported around the country. Obviously, we're heading toward polls closing in some states within about an hour. Others much, much later in Alaska 
Alaska, they close sometime next week, depending <laughs> on how the time zones work. I've never really understood that, where the dateline is. Um, but uh, apparently the Associated Press is reporting that President Donald Trump is spending Election Day calling allies, tweeting endorsements, and following news coverage. We know which news coverage. <laughs> After concluding a six-day rally blitz in uh, Missouri late Monday, faced with the possibility of keeping the Senate but losing the House, aides have begun laying out the political reality to Trump, who could face an onslaught of Democratic-run investigations and paralysis of his policy agenda. Uh, long lines of malfunctioning machines marred the first hours of voting in some precincts in the U.S., including, as we've been talking about here in New York. Uh, some of the biggest problems, though, were reported Tuesday in Georgia, a state with a highly contested gubernatorial election. Uh, Arrow was just talking about that now. Uh, one example cited here is that at a polling place in Snellville, Georgia, more than 100 people took turns sitting in children's chairs and on the floor as they waited in line uh, for hours. Uh, House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, at least the Democratic leader for the moment, uh, says the midterm elections are basically a referendum on Republican efforts to scrap Obamacare. And that's interesting because <laughs> CNN is also reporting that in their exit polls, four of ten voters, apparently a, a plurality, say health care is the driving issue for them, which is fascinating because we've been so focused about on, on election violence, on the caravan, on Brett Kavanaugh. I don't think we've talked about healthcare very much, at least at least not here. Not much here. It has certainly come up in some of the House races around New York. Uh, we sent a reporter up to look at the John Faso race. He's a Republican in the Hudson Valley facing a very tough challenger from Antonio Delgado, the Democrat. That race has gotten a lot of national attention, a lot of money that's seen as a swing, potential swing district. That's really one of the districts across the country that Democrats are seeing as a, as a possible pickup. Healthcare has definitely been in the discussion there, uh, as well as in the Donovan Max Rose race that's Staten Island and Brooklyn. So there's definitely been some conversation, but there's so much of the national dialogue narrative that is, you know, Trump dominated and he's not really talking about health care. So that gets crowded out sometimes. But I saw an interesting map the other day about uh, across the country, the issues that are being talked about the most during election season and health care was dominant over the course of a lot of the country. And it's fascinating because, you know, you hear folks even within the Republican Party who are not the J.C. Polanco, never Trump types who want, you know, Trump to do well and are, and are behind him, who are scratching their heads about why the economy is not more of the discussion from the president who is doing more of the fear mongering about a caravan that's a thousand miles from the from border. And of course, single payer health care is an issue here in New York as well. It is one of those issues that some Democrats are very excited to uh, attack. Others not really very excited at all. We spoke on the show a few weeks ago with Senator Mike Gennaris, who is the head of the Democratic Senate campaign committee in the state. And he talked about some issues that are the low hanging fruit, as you alluded to earlier, and some that are coming down the pipe a little further, if at all. And I think single-payer health care is in that second batch. Well, he didn't even want to use the phrase. He didn't want to, you know, he seemed to not want to say single-payer. He seemed to not want to say Medicare for all. You know, he talked about health care generally as a as an issue Democrats will, will certainly look at in a new session if they gain control. But it was clearly not at the top of his priorities. What's interesting about that is we were wondering at Gotham Gazette, where the single payer discussion is actually occurring in these state Senate races. And when we looked into it, a lot of Democratic 
candidates, even on Long Island in the Hudson Valley in some of these swing districts where you would think it would actually not be smart to talk about pushing single payer. They are talking about it. They are supporting it. Even Andrew Gennardis in southern Brooklyn in a you know very moderate district that Marty Golden has represented, Republican has represented for a long time. He's not it's not top of his agenda, but he's openly talking about healthcare for all and, and being behind single payer. So it is part of the discussion, which is fascinating considering I would have thought that these Senate candidates would not have touched it. Right. It's moving moving to be more of a populist issue than it ever was. Let's talk to our audience here. If you guys could think of one issue, I'm sure there's more than one, one issue that motivated you as you made your choices at the polls today, assuming you've, you've been to vote already, uh, for how many folks was it health care? Nobody. Housing? <laughs> few hands on housing. Donald Trump? <laughs> That's few yeah, hands on so Trump. Far, so far. Criminal justice? What other issues besides those have missed? Justice? Transit. Transit. Transit's a big one. Who, how many people voted because of transit? Voted on transit? I just it's, it, you know it was important to you and that's and so it's important well climate, climate change, change yeah I mean that's that's another one that's been missing from a lot of the discussion um, in in our state elections certainly I mean you know one of the frustrating things for me about the elections that we're wrapping up today in New York is that we just haven't heard enough from Governor Cuomo about what he wants to do with the third term. He had one general election debate for an hour. I don't know if folks in the room saw that debate with Mark Molinaro, but the governor did agree. He didn't have to, um, but he, he did agree to a one hour, one on one debate. And he made sure that it wasn't a very substantive debate. He was very aggressive. He was sort of asking his own questions of Molinaro and really putting the Trump issue to Molinaro, which was probably an effective strategy strategy in a number of ways, but it wasn't really much of a policy discussion. And the governor didn't agree to any other debates. So we haven't heard a lot from him about exactly what he wants to do. We have a sketch of an agenda for for the next term. But, you know, my sense in, in talking to people about how they're voting, and maybe that's indicative of how folks reacted to some of our questions here, is that it's not necessarily always one issue that's, you know, the single driving force or easy to name that it's sort of this collective, uh, you know, group of issues and knowing that a certain district could swing Democratic and then give, you know, Democrats control of, of something like the state Senate. So since we have a sample of people who voted here, uh, curious if anybody had problems at the polls this morning or this afternoon. Anybody have any delays or issues at all? Yeah. You had some delays? Come up and talk about it. Welcome to the where where was this? What neighborhood? Talking to the talking to the mic there, yeah, go ahead. And when I walked up to the neighborhood to vote, two blocks away I can see a line. I walked away. What time of day was this? About nine o'clock in the morning. Okay. So during the morning morning rush. I was up at five. I could have got there early enough, but I said no rush. <laughs> But here, I want to ask you guys a question. Do you hear that uh, Republican guy come here and talk about how Giuliani brought in the quality of life issue to clean up New York City? We did. Yes, we you did. you agree with that? Oh, well, no. no. I mean, he, he opened up a can of worms. Did, yes. You should be aware that you wouldn't be here right now if we weren't trying to recall that thinking. No, right? certainly. That, Trump, the, the, Trump is known to be this guy's... They're part and parcel, guys. You can't let guys come in and have shots at us. Like, my hands are still dirty from cleaning up Bushwick in 1990, bro. Yeah. Bushwick. No. 100,000 people we, in yeah. poverty. And then after Giuliani came Bloomberg. 
And then you had internet domain that came in. And we have developers come here and did what they've done to us today. We can't have people come here and take pot shots like that, man. Well, it's a valid point. Valid no, point. We, we understand your you perspective had a on the, the polls too. My wife just mentioned. Yeah, come on up to the mic. <laughs> this is. We'll also. Okay, I also want to give uh, give this opportunity if anybody else wants to come up to the mic and either talk about who they voted for and why in today's election. That'd be great. We're interested in hearing a little bit of a sample of folks in the room. If you want to talk about your choices at the ballot box today, that'd be great. Go ahead, sir. My wife just mentioned this morning that two scanning machines were out in Brooklyn Heights, not very far from here. And did. Did you make your way to the polls today? Yeah, I didn't have an issue. You didn't have an issue. Yeah, I didn't have an issue uh, first thing this morning in my Brooklyn precinct, but seems to not necessarily be the the norm across the city. Uh, I'm sure there were some individuals who had smooth experiences like me, but there's been lots of lots of challenges. I've been told we are required by federal law to say that you're listening to WBAI New York, yeah. 99.5 FM, and you're listening to Max and Murphy. This is not legally required, but you're listening to Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show on the politics, policies, and people of New York City and New York State. And um, Go ahead, Linda. So I noticed on the Upper West Side that we had more voters than we ever have going to the That was number one. Number two was that um, one, of the, uh, one of the machines was broken. They said that the um, it would take about an hour to get it fixed. I have no idea if that, that was the case. Thank you, Grayson. And um, thirdly, you know, just the fact that you had two sheets of paper, that the ballot was two sheets. One sheet was on, you had to look on the back for the propositions. It seemed to me that for some people this was so complicated to have to do this. Another problem is a, a woman behind me hadn't filled in all the uh, circles and then she had to go back. Another person, in the way that the candidates were divided, it looks as if you could vote for two people along one line, and then your vote would have been violated. It wouldn't have been good, wouldn't have counted. So you had to then go back, give them that ballot again, and then get another number. Yeah, for folks listening who haven't gone to vote yet, this is definitely one of the trickier aspects of it that you have to pay special attention to, which is, uh, I believe it's especially in the race for governor, the way the candidates laid out on the ballot was somewhat confusing, certainly, especially if you haven't looked up ahead of time the, the sample ballot. Jared, I want to return to something that Errol was talking about, which is sort of some of this uh, national scene. Uh, there are some very interesting races across the country, including one that Errol didn't bring up, which is a Senate race in Texas where Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat, is trying to unseat Ted Cruz. Um, do you think... He has a chance to do that. What's your sense of that race, and does that what does that race mean, uh, you know, for for President Trump for nationally? Uh, I don't know anything but what I read in Politico and the New York Times, but it seems as though that race is is not really considered a toss-up anymore. It's leaning toward Cruz being reelected. Um, the, the, what bothers me about races like that, and that would be true even of some of the races that are are Democratic and and being seen as as threatened by a Republican insurgent, is that it builds these expectations into it that if if Beto O'Rourke, a fairly progressive Democrat, doesn't defeat Ted Cruz in Texas, it means the blue wave did 
didn't exist. You know, it creates this expectation, this kind of bar that uh, that the candidate has to cross. I think he's probably unlikely to, but but who knows? Uh, you know, it's a Texas is a massive place. It's a crazy election, and uh, as the AP is reporting, there is actually, as Errol said, a lot of really bad weather uh, in the southern uh, United southeastern United States, and that could affect East Texas and and some portions of the interior. Yeah, I mean, we've seen you know we've seen not only some questionable you know some tough weather here and some questionable things at the polls, but has, as also has been mentioned, there are some parts of the country where you're seeing reports about hours of wait time that actually make, you know, some of the experiences in New York where some have had hours, some of the experiences in New York not necessarily quite as, uh, quite as challenging as elsewhere. I put in that bucket of the of the O'Rourke um, Cruz race, I put in that bucket also the Stacey Abrams race in Georgia, where you have a candidacy that's gotten a lot of attention, potentially history-making, potentially huge national repercussions, but really the Democratic candidate is very unlikely to win. And of course, if the Democratic candidates in those two races win, you're talking about a huge wave election year. But as you said, there's almost this narrative that's been set up because there is so much buzz around these candidates and they're, you know, somewhat rock stars in their own rights. And and there's been so much national attention and celebrities that have come to campaign with them that there's almost this this uh, narrative that's set up that if those candidates are not successful, uh, you know, it means something particular that's probably not quite there about where the Democratic Party is and even where President Trump is. And President Trump, let's mention his name and the fact that, you know, this is his first midterm election. It is traditional for sitting presidents to lose some of their party's share of Congress in that election. Um, twice in sort of our time as politically conscious people, that's happened to Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton with the Republican Revolution in 1994 and Barack Obama in 2010 when the Democrats had a disastrous election. And in both cases, those presidents were reelected pretty resoundingly two years later. So I think for anybody who reads the tea leaves tonight to indicate that even a blue wave of massive proportion means that Trump is done um, might be a little premature in that. In both cases, though, those election results fundamentally changed those presidencies. Bill Clinton, it led to more of the triangulation. Um, the new Democrat Clinton we all came to love or loathe, um, you know, effective uh, death penalty and counterterrorism act, welfare reform reform, uh, immigration controls, um, repeal of Glass-Steagall, all the things that sort of define Bill Clinton's centrist presidency, and in Obama's case, a presidency that really was able to accomplish very little because of an incredibly obstructionist Congress uh, for his final, essentially his final six years in office. So what's going to happen nationally if Democrats take control of the House? Are we looking at two years of nothing getting done in Washington? Do we see President Trump quickly shift into a bipartisan dealmaker? Uh, are we, do we see uh, investigation after investigation? I mean, will Democrats file impeachment proceedings? Will they figure out a way to get his taxes? Will it be all-out warfare? Or are we going to see some compromise on, you know, the sort of 
infrastructure bill that's been hanging over everybody's head for years now. Well, he's such a mercurial figure, right, that it, who knows what Trump might do. I mean, he has batted all over the field on some issues. He might be willing to cut a deal with, with Democrats um, to, so that he can say he's got something done. Uh, who knows if some if he if he loses the House and potentially the Senate and maybe some of these governor races go the wrong way and it's clear the country is, is really shifting against the president, maybe some Republicans who had stuck close to Trump for strategic reasons move away and decide they want to cut a deal. That's one of the strategic questions Democrats face now is what do they want to present to the public in two years' time? That they played good defense against Trump, which is legit and obviously you know there's a lot to defend on, um, or that they actually were able to accomplish something on infrastructure, on changing some of the onerous aspects of the tax bill, uh, maybe less likely um, – oh, that's my mom calling – maybe less, less likely uh, <laughs> immigration. Um, I think that's a really interesting strategic decision. Uh, one, I think, valuable commentator is David Axelrod, the strategist for Obama, and he said he feels Democrats are playing right into Republican hands by following him up the volume chart, escalating as he escalates. Eric Holder saying, you know, when they go low, we, we kick them, or whatever kick his them, yeah. phrase was, that this is just following Trump into, into territory that is not going to be beneficial in the long run to Democrats. Uh, it's an interesting open question. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is this really dueling sentiment that's out there. One is holding Trump more accountable, potentially, you know, investigating him, investigating some of his cabinet members, people from his campaign, you know, making sure that the Mueller investigation goes forward and really, you know, sees its full fruition, getting at Trump's taxes, that type of stuff. But then people want things to get done. People want infrastructure funding. They want housing funding. They want, you know, things for transit. I mean, you go down the list, immigration reform, environmental issues. So this is one of these areas where I question the strategy that Democrats might have going into this potential split government, but also one thing that you know needs to be said repeatedly about Donald Trump is he does whatever he needs to do to survive, whether it's cheating, lying, you name it, filing bankruptcy, hiding money, all of those things. He's clearly done all of them, and he keeps surviving and moving on to the next game. So one of the things that I'm interested to see is if that is the case, if there is this split government, whether he all of a sudden starts to look to make deals. And if he's coming to Democrats in the House with a deal on infrastructure and trying to distract them from this idea of investigating him, well, then that puts a certain onus on them to make a decision there. Yeah, I think let's uh, I'm curious this crowd. I'm assuming this is a not not a pro Trump crowd just based on, you know, Our some location. stereotypes and location. So, let's take a <laughs> let's take a poll and say if Donald Trump and congressional Democrats when they're in the majority in a, in a few weeks time, uh, when people are are begin their their new term, if they reached a deal on infrastructure, say, that could, you know, fundamentally improve our transit system here in the city, but would mean Donald Trump gets a significant political victory to carry into 2020, do you take that deal? Who takes that deal? Anyone? Who says no way? 
few hands up for taking the deal. Right. Most people, and a few no way. more, no way. And I think you know, part of the picture I'm interested in tonight, Ben, and we talked about this a little earlier at a different program, is you know, getting some data on if the country does shift Democratic House, maybe Senate, some governors' races. Who are the voters doing that? Are these voters who weren't out in 2016 who are coming in and voting Democratic? Are they people who did vote in 2016 but are shifting from being Trump to being uh, Democratic supporters? This obviously occurred in a lot of districts that were Obama and then Trump. And this question I think Democrats face is, do they feel we live in a permanently 51-49 country where it's about clawing to get just enough to win elections uh, scraping by? Or do they feel it's possible to have a broader appeal and we could someday have a 55-45 country? I think part of it is, you know, what do they see as their strategic uh, ceiling uh, in the current context? That's a great question. We're going to go to an audience question or comment. This is Bertolt, WBI. Um, well, just to emphasize um, my stance on not taking a deal is um, I'm from Haiti. And uh, when Papa Doc and Baby Doc were killing thousands of people, it was no deal. So as soon as they lost power, they wanted to make a deal. So I believe that you know there has to be justice before there is any form of equality. You know, like once you, before you move forward, you have to you have to, you know you have to have justice. And there's no justice. You know, there, there have been abuses all over, and then the, the Democrats keep on running away from issues, running away from being so-called liberals because they are no them liberals and. You know, in the in, in the United States, as far as in government, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders, but there, there's no such thing as liberals, Democrat. I don't see any. Um, and so they they ran away from the healthcare, from from uh, standing uh, for the healthcare. And I could actually say that I believe that they lost uh, that badly to Donald Trump because they ran away from the healthcare, which is uh, an issue they were they were they were supporting. They should have stood by it, and then we should have seen what happened. So I believe that they have to stand by. You know. so, so this is an interesting question, not only for potentially the next two years with the Democratic House, but also what happens with the Democratic field for president. And this is where the campaigns that will be run for president for 2020, and that campaign is starting basically tomorrow, uh, will be interesting to see how the different potential candidates or actually declared candidates stake out their ground, what kind of platforms, and where is the Democratic electorate? What kind of presidential candidate are Democrats looking to nominate this time around? It seems like there's a lot of sentiment in the Democratic Party, but maybe this is just the, the more energy and the louder element of it. Our folks are looking for not the Hillary Clinton type of candidate, but someone maybe more in the Bernie Sanders vein, although perhaps not Bernie Sanders, uh, but someone with a different background, younger, et cetera, you know, we'll have to see. On the ballot tonight are two New Yorkers who are talked about as part of the 2020 conversation. Obviously, if Governor Cuomo, who has said he's not running for president in 2020, but if Governor Cuomo is successful winning a third term, there is certainly going to immediately be more questions about whether that's something that he's going to at least flirt with a little bit, put you know some feelers out there, maybe take a couple trips to New Hampshire, do that type of thing. And there are, of course, questions around whether someone like Andrew Cuomo would be appealing to the Democratic electorate for a presidential run. And then there's Kirsten Gillibrand, the U.S. Senator. She's expected to cruise to re-election tonight. 
where, where will she land? Now, she said during her lone debate with her Republican challenger, Shel Farley, she also said she's not running for president in 2020, but then she sort of changed her language a little bit pretty quickly and said, um, that's not my intention, and my intention is to serve my full six-year term. So whether, whether the Democratic electorate is clamoring for either of them or both of them to be in the picture, certainly there's New Yorkers on the ballot tonight who may be part of that 2020 conversation. And we might see early in this cycle, which again starts, I think, tomorrow. Uh, About 10 p.m. tonight. Yeah. Uh, we might see what the Republicans had two years ago, which is these stages of 16 candidates or even an undercard in a main event. Uh, I was going to say overcard, but I knew that wasn't right. Uh, the main event of, you know, six candidates in the undercard, another 12, you know, these, these massive debates uh, where Trump obviously was able to, to land his punches and, and come out ahead. But we might see a Democratic field similar to that, which would be interesting. It would be interesting to see how that all goes and who's, who's in that race, um, but also could make for a fairly messy yet entertaining uh, 2019. This might be the opportune moment for me to say that I've decided I won't be running for president in 2020. <laughs> I simply I have too many projects around the house to do. But uh, in addition to uh, Cuomo and, and Gillibrand, there are other people in this field of about 80 Democrats who might run for president who are on the ballot in various states tonight. Sherwood Brown in, uh, in Ohio, Tim Kaine uh, in Virginia, uh, Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota, and of course, a certain Senator Sanders in Vermont, um, mostly expected to cruise, although I guess the Brown race is, is a little closer. And I'll um, tell you right now, though, Beto O'Rourke, Andrew Gillum, Stacey Abrams, there are going to be people talking about all three of them, win or lose, also for getting involved in that field. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Remember, Obama was a one-term senator when he when he ran and won. So um, right now, I think it's a good point to a good moment to shift again to the local scene. And actually, places, though, where the local scene here in Brooklyn intersects with the statewide stories we've been talking about and the national story. And we're going to bring on uh, an excellent local reporter, Kadia Goba, from a Brooklyner, who is here and she's been covering the race. Make sure you're close enough to the, uh, to the mic. Uh, let's welcome Kadia. How are you? Good to see you. How are you doing? Good, good, good. Thanks, thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm sure. So you're a veteran of Kings County politics, Brooklyner. Uh, you've been uh, beating the That's pavement yeah. in this area for a while. Yeah. And uh, today I know you've been out covering sort of some of the uh, races that are playing out in, in this area of Brooklyn. What are you hearing and seeing, first of all, about this issue of the polls, polling sites, problems at polling sites, people having trouble voting? Are you seeing any of that? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked. We did. I did not expect this to happen. Um, Brooklyner and ProPublica did a collaboration where they would um, get all these feeds, so I was kind of cooped up today. I thought I'd be at the poll sites, and that didn't happen because there was so much going on. We expected it kind of, right, with the 38-inch long two-page ballot. <laughs> That you have to flip over, which they and don't tear. Mention. Yeah, and tear. They yeah. don't mention the tear part, which I think is very interesting. But so we kind of anticipated it. Um, they've known for a while. It's interesting that we only heard about it about two weeks ago. But I mean, from my, my personal experience, I went to my voting site today at before eight o'clock this morning, and someone, one of the uh, poll site people, work, workers, was telling the. Uh, voters to vote down your ballot line, right? So that's not even 
That's, that's, that's a whole other problem. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, is, and, and it's sad because um, essentially the the observer who kind of monitors the, the polling site didn't know. She actually had to call a hotline and confirm what I was telling her that that's not supposed to happen. But aside from that, voter turnout was crazy. Um, you, I, I'm sure you guys heard. Uh, when you say turnout was crazy, are you talking about crazy. specific areas? Well, a lot of areas. I, I, I hear um, Southern Brooklyn, which you expected a lot of. They obviously they had a larger. That's, that's where uh, it's turnout. all at. Yeah, that was expected. But even in areas downtown Brooklyn, in Fort Greene, where the beat, where the uh, Eric Adams, the borough president, went, um, a couple of voting uh, scanners failed, and the the challenger or the incumbent there is not even facing a challenger, right? So, um, yeah, but a lot of snafus with. Um, uh, election, the scanners do, uh, just messing up, basically. So we have these two interesting races that we've alluded to or spoken about tonight. One uh, could affect control of the state Senate. That's the race where Senator Marty Golden, longtime Republican incumbent, is being challenged by Andrew Gunardis, the Democrat, for the second time that Gunardis is challenging him. And you have also this race in parts of southern Brooklyn and obviously all of Staten Island, the District 11 congressional uh, contest between incumbent Republican Daniel Donovan and challenger Max Rose, or as we're all used to from hearing in his emails, Army veteran Max Rose. Uh, so are, I know you've been paying some attention to those races. Uh, are those the races drawing people to the polls? Um, and to what extent are they kind of directing election day? I think they worked together, District 11, the Congressional District 11, as well as the Senatorial District. Um, there's a, a cohort of very anti-Marty, this is an eight-time incumbent, right? Um, people want change out there. The district has actually changed since, um, I, I, I guess I could call this Gennardis's comeback, right? Um, 2012. He, he challenged, he challenged. Him in 2012. So it, it, it's already one of the most diverse districts in the, um, in the borough. So it should be interesting. Last time he beat him by 9,000, about 9,000 votes when you combine yeah. votes when you combine both the uh, conservative lines and the Republican lines. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, like, who's moved away from the district, who has come into the district, and who's just maybe fed up with the incumbent, the in, Republican incumbent. In 2012, Andrew Gernardis, who is now the uh, counsel to the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, in 2012, Gernardis challenged Golden, as we're talking about, didn't come close, but we're six years later here. The district has changed, as you said. The dynamics of the race have changed, where you have a lot of Democratic energy that's been devoted to that race. A lot of these folks who were very active uh, in trying to defeat the members of the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference of the State Senate, have now turned their general election attention to helping Gennardis defeat Golden. And that's really the only state Senate race between the two parties with any real sense of competition here in the general election in New York City. So there's been a lot of energy devoted there to helping Gennardis, yet... Marty Golden has maintained a level of popularity in that district. Um, is you know is that something you've seen? Do you still see that being there, or do you think he, his sort of time is is done? Well, sure. I think you guys touched on it earlier. There's the Trump factor, also, right? So they're not also that they're not only voting against Marty, or people might not only be voting against Marty. They're going to be voting against the Republican uh, Trump. So it's 
that could also benefit both the congressional race and the senatorial race. And then, of course, you have like Ben Stiller coming out for Gennardis also. So, yeah, I don't know if folks caught that, but Ben Stiller, the actor and director, was out there knocking on doors with Andrew Gennardis in southern Brooklyn. So getting a little bit of social media buzz, I guess, you know, on his behalf. I don't know how much of a difference that makes in the end total, but uh, at least it got him a little more buzz leading into Election Day. You know, so much of the focus in in the coverage um, that we do and that I know you do, too, is about issues and whether issues are motivating voters, what issues are on the table when people return to office after the election. But it sounds to me like in both these races, uh, it's certainly not about issues. It might not even be about the personality of individual uh, office holders like Golden or, or Donovan. It really is just a proxy f- vote on on the president. Yeah. Right, is anybody talking about yeah, housing? Talking about, or, I've moderated a couple of their debates and they're talking about issues. Healthcare happens to be one. Gennardis is for universal health care and Marty's uh, Golden's mantra has been you'll you'll bankrupt um, the states the the state if you you know that's been a lot of the Republican pushback on single payer is that it would push taxes through the roof and the state wouldn't be able to afford it and you're talking about a state takeover of health care etc so but that issue has been coming up absolutely quite a bit but then there's also the child's victims act which is oddly okay so Gennardis is for the child's victims act right and i don't know if you guys know what that is it means you to increase the age of the victim who has been assaulted um where they could ultimately sue or press charges against their assailant whereas Golden opposes it, but he's for the Child's Victims Fund, right? So this was this was a Republican compromise around the Child Victims Act to not necessarily open up all the statute of limitations and create this look back window, but a different uh, attempt at a compromise from the Republican side because there was clearly a lot of uh, uh, attention coming to them about blocking sure. a vote on the Child Victims Act in the Senate. So that that's an issue that's come up yep. repeatedly. So those two, anything else that's sort of been top of mind in the transit, golden, obviously. Uh, do they have different solutions on that, or they're both saying I'll fight for more transit for Southern Brooklyn? They're, they're both saying they'll fight for more. But interestingly enough, uh, Golden actually served on the state committee um, for transit. So Gennardis brings that up. Does Gennardis support congestion pricing? He does. He does. So yes. that's that's a big difference. I'm assuming. I think Golden has I said think. that he he wants to wait and see what the proposal looks like, which of course I think we all probably want to, but sure. but he has he has not signaled uh, certainly support for congestion pricing, right? Yeah. Does the does the notion that this race alone could swing control of the chamber does that come up in the race or oh. is that much? Yeah, it does. Sure, yeah. for sure. Like so, so, so this is, is the the, goal, the ticket, right? This is the seat. If Golden <laughs> loses, um, he could actually flip the house. Gennardis will have flipped the house. So, yeah. So it's that, a that, is, that is part of the discussion. It's not just something us outside observers, they're actually, folks in the district are actually recognizing that. No, definitely. And in, and in terms of the house race, Donovan, Rose, sure. this is a very different dynamics. Obviously, you bring Staten Island into the picture, whereas in Gennardis and Golden, that's, that's Southern Brooklyn. Sure. Um, what is your sense of where that race is? I mean, even in an election wave year that Democrats are supposed to be having, isn't isn't Donovan still a favorite, or how, what's your sense of? Where it's just that's at? still a very conservative district, right? Because you have it's like half a portion of Bay Ridge and then Staten Island, and um, 
Attorney. Yeah, Attorney. I mean, one of the biggest issues has been the opioid crisis, and uh, Rose has been knocking Donovan's stance on it since he was district attorney at one point. But with all that said, and I have to give it to, I'm sorry, uh, Rose's uh, campaign, huge, like huge turnout. And, and not like since recently the GOTV um, get out to vote recently, but since August, they have been like, pounding the pavement. But then again, if you look at his campaign finances, he only got 6% of in-district support. That's Max Rose. He's yeah. bringing in a lot of money from outside the district. Right. So what does that say? You know? like That's that's one of the things I'm most interested in seeing, and I don't know if there's any folks in the room here who have been out knocking doors at any point over the last weeks or months. There seems to be, in these two races, Gennardis Golden and Rose Donovan, an incredible number of people who volunteered to go and canvas and knock on doors. Does that actually make the difference? You know, is one of the things I'm interested in seeing. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when she beat Joe Crowley, that was one of the things. Yes, she had a lot of charisma. She had a very democratic socialist platform. But one of the biggest things they pointed to was the fact that they knocked on so many doors and they took this really aggressive approach to canvassing. And we've seen that in some of the IDC races. And now we're seeing that in these two races. I mean, I saw something on social media that over the weekend, the Rose campaign was saying they could knock, they could canvass the whole island, basically. Do you think that, interesting, I've always wondered if, if that works or if it's a, there's a backlash to having all these outsiders kind of stomping knocking through your neighborhood, door. knocking on doors. What, what do people say about that? Do you think it's effective? So I've talked to voters and I haven't come across anyone that was annoyed by it, but I would imagine it has to be at one point. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they annoyed one person, right? Like, but I mean, you have to admire the effort. Jared, I don't know uh, where you see that. I mean, is that race sort of a bellwether or is Staten Island, in, I mean, is you, in your experience, is Staten Island a different animal? I think Staten Island is a different animal in the sense that, you know, it is majority Democratic and has been for a long time, but obviously tends to swing Republican. Many of those Democrats are what we would call Reagan Democrats or conservative Dems. It's, uh, I think, um, either first or second fastest growing borough over the last few years. Um, it's becoming more diverse, although it is still less diverse than other boroughs, but really is just so different, not just from other parts of the city, but frankly, other counties in the state, too. It really is a, a very different animal. And how is Don Donovan approached this Trump question. You know, he was endorsed by Trump in the primary who had to defeat his predecessor, Michael Grimm, which was a fascinating race in itself. Yeah. Um, how has he straddled that? Has he really hugged the president close? Or So he's been a little cons- more conservative in terms of the general election. Definitely during the primary... They were both trying to outright eat each other. He has been very conservative in touting his Trump card Even during the general. general. Yeah. For sure. He was aggressive during the primary. It was all about Trump, Trump, Trump. And, of course, he got the endorsement. But there's no endorsement. I, 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 I haven't heard anything about Trump this during this general. So you think he's been a little bit more moderate? Yeah, he's, uh, because he's, he's going against sure. someone that's, you know, touting himself as, as very progressive. I just want to chime in something we've gotten from the field. Uh, City Limits has a reporter, Sadaf Ali Kali, out in Staten Island. And she spoke to a... Uh, uh, sorry, a voter a little while ago who said, I hate to say it, but local politics is not what drove me to vote today. Uh, this is uh, Jan Kohler, who lived in Staten Island since the 70s. I don't pretend to know much about economics. I don't pretend to know much about trade. I don't pretend to know any of the important stuff in politics, but I do know hate speech when I hear it. So I think we know which way they're voting. 
I, you know, I think both these races are not necessarily going to make or break whether Democrats take the state Senate or take the House. But if you're talking about a level of a blue wave that some are expecting, then then both these seats will flip. And that would portend probably very big wins for Democrats uh, in both chambers, both at the state level and the federal level. You know, one of the most important things, and we bring J.C. Polanco back up here in a couple minutes, we'll, we'll ask him about this, but one of the most interesting things about the state Senate races is do Democrats, if they do flip the chamber, do they have a one-seat majority or do they have a little bit more of a cushion where not every single member of the conference has to always be behind things. They have a three or four seat majority and that gives you a lot of breathing room. We've seen Republicans in Albany with one seat control of the state Senate have a lot of tricky dynamics to play because that one seat, as many in the room and listening over the airwaves probably know, has been dependent on Simka Felder, a senator from Brooklyn who is a Democrat, caucuses Republicans, wins on both the Democratic and Republican ballot lines. He has made such a difference that a lot of the decision-making in the Republican conference has had to revolve around him, and that could easily be the case if Democrats have a one-seat majority, one or two sort of uh, troublemakers, for lack of a better word, or, or people who really want the attention for their district, which could be just about any member of the conference, uh, you know, could make a significant difference. So it would be very interesting tonight if there is a flip of the majority to see if there is some sort of cushion. Did you I, want to jump in on that? No, I agree. I <laughs> yeah. mean, and this race, this race in Southern Brooklyn could be a significant factor in that. Yeah. Uh, well, Kadia Goba, I know we have a big election to cover, so I'll let you go do it. But thank you so much for joining thank us. You, and you can find her work at Brooklyner, and yes. so check out check out her work uh, both on the election and afterward. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. back on Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM listener sponsored non-commercial radio coming to you live from Commons Cafe on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn with our election night special. We're coming toward the end of our two hours here talking about these all important midterm elections and we have back at the mic now Mr. J.C. Polanco, attorney of the Bronx and uh, our resident Republican uh, <laughs> one might say the, the word token. Um, <laughs> Metro card, please. Yes, yes. Metro card. Um, so, so JC, uh, let's talk about the Republican Party yep. and the fact that tonight in New York State, it's very likely they are going to suffer um, maybe a defeat of historic proportions yes. in terms of its breadth. Yes. Um, the National Party will leave aside for the moment because you've talked a little bit about that. But what does the Republican Party need to do in New York State to be relevant again, assuming it's not relevant, or be more relevant if you think it actually is? I think it's very difficult right now. We just were. Uh, um, I don't know if you guys, this is some inside baseball, but last uh, six months, the Democrats outregistered Republicans almost 10 to 1. It was very scary. I mean, if you, if you consider that those numbers will just continue to grow and, and that incredible disparity, um, I think that we're looking at uh, the end of the Republican Party as we know it. You know, we live, uh, as many Republicans like myself, we are like Al Bundy. You remember Al Bundy? 
married with children. My age and my son. I remember it. You know how he would reminisce? Fondly. Reminisce on those touchdowns in high school. It's similar here. When we think about George Pataki, and we're like, oh my goodness, three terms, right? We think about Vaco and D'Amato and all this nostalgia. That was might as well be a generation ago. Uh, we're looking at a, a, a very different time. And these Republicans, we, you know, I, I speak to Republicans today, they're very different. I mean, but George Pataki was a pro-choice Republican that really did a lot of favors for the unions across the city. I mean, his liberal streak was incredible. He would not win a primary today. And if we look at the reality of what kind of Republican gets elected in New York State, it's not the Trump version that you see happening now. So in order for New York to turn around somehow and not go into the abyss, because right now, as, you, as you're studying this, New York politics is going to become a civil war soon between the Cortez faction of the Democratic Party and the more moderate Clinton Crowley faction. Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo. And then you have another group that is a very important group. Those are blank voters. Those blank voters are, are going to number us probably by next month. Those numbers are incredible. Where do they identify with on election day? Who can tap into them? The only survival for the Republican Party is to really push away from Donald Trump and, ha and focus on the blank voter. The blank voter is more important for New York Republicans than Donald Trump. If you look at Hogan in Maryland and if you look at uh, Baker, Baker in, in Massachusetts, these are never Trump Republican governors who have never Trump Republican Republican organizations, and they're very popular, and they're going to win big in their elections. So uh, expand on that a little bit more, though, in terms of what that looks like in New York. As you said, I don't know if folks caught this, but independent or unaffiliated voters, the number in New York is about to pass the number of Republican yes. voters in New York. Which Just is to give pretty, you the actual numbers, please. Uh, it's 22.6 uh, million Republicans and 2.4 million voters registered as blank in New York State. So, by so next a couple month, hundred thousand. Literally, at the way things are going in the next couple of months, I think that by the next enrollment update, we're going to be third. I mean, think about that. So you have this candidate this year, Mark Molinaro, for governor, who is not, is not as liberal as George Pataki was even uh, nearly a generation ago. I think some of his positions now, since leaving the assembly and during this campaign, I could make the argument that he's changed on, on some of these. He has, he has, but, but he, yeah. he not, not quite. Not right, quite. He's had more of a conservative voting yes. record that... Andrew Cuomo and others yes. have thrown back at him, but fairly moderate, as you said, like yourself, not a Trump supporter. Um, is he? He's the type of candidate that needs to be the future of the Republican Party, but does he not have to bring the Republican base along with him to understand that they have to appeal to the the blanks, as you call yeah, them? Yeah, you, you can't. You can't have uh, the the Republican Party in New York is a is a bottom up party. The the base runs the party. It's not it's not there's going to be a leader coming down and it's going to excite these Trumpers to come and join them. I saw that firsthand in my race for public advocate. Um, I ran a campaign and, and Gotham Gazette did a great job covering and City Limits and all these organizations because it was very tough to break in and and be this type of Republican in New York City and run citywide. The reason is that Democrats don't really care for you because they have their person already. Right? <laughs> then Republicans don't really like you because you're now really down with the cause, you know? So then on election day, I look and the conservative party candidate, I'm sure he's a great guy, but he didn't campaign. There was no, there was no campaign. I mean, there was nothing going on. And this guy, 
right from his house in Rockaways, everybody knew he was a Trump guy though, right? He was able to get about 60% of Republicans on election day to go vote from the mayor, to go vote for him on a third party line and skip me completely because of these positions that I have. These are people so, who voted for Nicole Maliotakis. And then came back to vote for Michael Faulkner because he supported Trump. So the base is no joke. The base is loyal. They will diss you on election, embarrass you. And embarrass you, they did. They embarrassed me, you know? But I understand in order for, a, for there to be a true saving of the party in New York State, the base has to recognize that New York is very different from the rest of the country. And that we have to follow the model of Hogan in Maryland and Baker, Massachusetts in order to be able to survive. We have to be able to embrace minorities and immigrants and really disavow this caravan talk. We have to embrace the LGBT community. We have to, or else you're dead. You know, it's almost as if, and I, and, and I hope that Republicans that are listening don't get too mad, because can you imagine uh, Heidi Hangham in North Dakota, an incumbent senator, she's most likely going to lose tonight because she's running in a place that is super Trump supporting, and she's not. So it's it's you can see what happens when you have a, a candidate that runs against the grain. Many times that message won't resonate and you end up losing, like Heidi most likely will tonight. So when you have in New York a message that is very Trumpish, that New York continues to reject and you continue to push that message in New York City, New York State, you're gonna continue to lose. It is a regional thing uh, and we have to embrace it. You can't keep pushing a, mar a product in the market that the market continues to reject. So today when you look at it as New York City, I know there are a lot of incumbents and there are a lot of my friends that are running that are very happy to see all these people voting because they think they're voting for them. Nobody's voting for you, man. They're voting against Donald Trump. You think they're really, honestly, do you think that these 64 plus assembly members in the in New York City, these guys are so famous that everybody's coming out to vote for them? Get out of here. You have record turnout because people want to send the message to Donald Trump. You're going to have people that are going to have very close elections that maybe shouldn't have because of Donald Trump. It's incredible to see. This is a, repudi a repudiation of, of, of this presidency in New York City. And sorry, Democrats that are in office, nothing to do with you. Look, if you're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, please recognize that the people that you see voting today, there is no race in the 14th district. We're, we have a Republican candidate who's been accused of all sorts of things and we don't even want to see, let alone think he's running on our line. There is no campaign there. So people are coming out to vote. They're not coming out to vote for Ocasio-Cortez. They want to send a message to Donald Trump. I want to pick up on something that a person in the audience who has since left said after you left. And you talked about coming up as a Republican in the Bronx and being um, energized by Rudy Giuliani and his quality of life yeah. um, uh, policies, which to him really smacked of some very racially problematic impact of those policies. Mm. Um, so I think the question of urban Republicans, especially in New York, there's baggage there that goes well before Donald Trump. Is that about bad packaging, bad coverage? Did, did some of those policies go too far? How do you look back at that period, which which was kind of a golden era for local Republicans? You had Giuliani, D'Amato, Pataki. Is there, are there any regrets about that? Um, I think my regret is the current day Giuliani is not the same person I remember. It's just not. Look, you got you guys can lie to yourselves, but Giuliani, when he was mayor, he was speaking to the LGBT community. He was trying to get the Hispanic support. There were many black ministers across the city that supported him. It was the post-Giuliani era where people started thinking about some of the policies and did they go too far? And I know Mayor Bloomberg carried out some, some more aggressive police policies that really upset some people here in New York City because it affected police community 
relations. But if you if you're gonna tell me that we went from a, of a city where we had over three thousand murders to three hundred murders, and that was done by mistake or because people decided one day that killing is bad, you're out of your mind. These were tough policies that needed to be put into place. These are policies that I benefited of from directly. My experience with the police is very different from my African American friends. Very different. I mean, they have a, a history of of a relationship with the police that is negative and has gone back for hundreds of years. My mine is very different. My parents came from the Dominican Republic, so my my immigrant story is very different than than the than the, my counterpart, than my student in my classroom, for example, that happens to be African American and has had very terrible experiences with the NYPD. So because we're part of the, of our experiences, I look back at the Giuliani era when he implements tough broken windows policies in the city and I see what happened to the crime in my block and I see my friends that are alive because of some of these policies and I have to think about were these policies responsible for changing the city around? And there are a lot of people here in Brooklyn opening up businesses all over Brooklyn and Astoria, Queens, that would have never left Iowa, Idaho, North Dakota, Virginia, and moved into those neighborhoods had those neighborhoods would have been what they were prior to Rudy. So it's, it's a fact. We're going to let you go in a minute. Uh, we could continue this conversation for hours, and we certainly will con <laughs> continue it again. Um, there's a lot more to, to discuss there, certainly. But um, we'd be remiss to let you go without asking and we started the show, and I don't think you were quite here yet, with City Council Member Jamani Williams, who says if things go as expected tonight with Letitia James, the public advocate, becoming attorney general, uh, which would open up her seat for public advocate, the seat that you ran for in 2017 yep. against her, uh, there will be a special election for public advocate. Is that something you're planning to pursue? I think Jumani did a great job, and I think he's going to be the front runner right off the bat because of his run, his run for lieutenant governor. But it's a seat that I love. I think the public advocate's race is a, uh, a position is a phenomenal position to be a counterweight to a to a city that is uh, that is very democratic, and you need someone from the other side that's going to be able to hold the mayor accountable to some of the things that are happening in New York City. And you can't do that unless you have someone that is outside of his political club. So I would be really interested, but as as you guys have seen, um, and if you look at my numbers and you look at some of my writings, I'm as popular with the Republican Party base as an STD. It's just a fact. <laughs> I'm as popular. I don't know whether the support will be there because my my also talk about charter schools and also talk about equality and early voting. I'm not changing my tune because uh, I think these things are important, and I don't think um, I don't think that there will be enough support there. But it's something I would definitely consider. Well, I will tell you that some STDs are <laughs> STDs are worse than others. So, thanks very much for for joining us, JC. Thank you, JC Polanco. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for the time. So we are coming to our last five minutes here. We're going to send off our great crowd here at Commons Cafe with a few final thoughts. Um, and, and we're also going to look ahead, of course, to results coming in. Polls close, of course, at 9 p.m. here in New York. New York City, the flip side of some of the issues that you have at your polling locations are, is that New York City is actually very good about election returns. So we know we know the results fairly quickly here, at least from the New York City precincts. But let's go over a few of the final things we want to send people away with, a few final thoughts, um, a couple of things that you're particularly watching for, Jared. Well, speaking of results, I'm curious if any of the returns around the country are going to be so close or controversial there's going to be some sort of dispute. I think the level of distrust and anger in the country makes that a very volatile situation. Um, and so hopefully that 
that won't occur, but obviously be very interested in seeing if it does. Um, I want to make a quick programming note before we go on because we were supposed to do this earlier. We did oh, legitimately yes. advertise that Mayor de Blasio was going to be on the show. That was confirmed. Uh, his staff had to pull that last night um, after we had recorded a lot of promos for it. So we saw he couldn't be there. Hopefully he'll be on the show in the future. But Yeah, um, they've, they've given us uh, an IOU, which uh, was not received kindly, but we'll talk about so that another time. Ben and um, I will be at the Park Slope Y tomorrow. Yeah, yes, exactly. Bang, bang a few out with the mayor. Yeah, I was remiss in not mentioning that before. My apologies. Um, you know, one of the most important things I'm looking for tonight is the margins in the statewide races. We really... In this conversation over the course of almost two hours, we've spent very little time discussing the governor's race, the attorney general race, the controller race, and there's good reason for that. The polls show that it looks like none of the Republicans have any chance. J.C. Polanco just talked about some of the reasons, you know, that he's very frankly thinks that's the case. Um, and there's obviously just numbers at play that just don't look good for Republicans. However. Uh, Keith Wofford, the attorney general candidate, you know, has spent has raised and spent a lot of money in his attorney general race. Letitia James is a fairly well-known name here in New York City, but really hasn't had much uh, exposure outside the city. So we don't exactly know where the vote's going to come in for her. So that's one worth watching. If there was going to be some sort of crazy thing tonight in a statewide race, it's probably in the attorney general's race. It's unlikely. It's worth mentioning. It's also very interesting, I think, to, to look at where Mark Molinaro finishes. Assuming that he doesn't pull off one of the most incredible upsets in political history, uh, what's his future look like? This is a fairly young guy, early 40s, uh, like we talked about with J.C. Polanco, fairly moderate. Um, he might have a future. He might have another run for governor in him, but how he finishes in this race will certainly impact that. So I think the statewide races are still worth looking at, in part because of some of the dynamics in the races, but also in part to go back to our conversation that we've had a bit here tonight and in other episodes of our show about where the two parties are in New York. And in these House and state Senate races, it is really about the independence, the blanks that J.C. Polanco mentioned. And if Donald Trump was able to secure a lot of those votes, Long Island, upstate, where are they now? Two years later, are a lot of those folks then returning to Democratic votes as they did for Obama? Are they Cuomo voters? You know, where are they in those local races? Nationally, I'm interested in looking at whether some of these uh, fellow, uh, these uh, voter disenfranchisement efforts will have an effect on the races one way or the other. North Dakota with this proof of address law, it appears to be energizing Native American voters. We'll see if that uh, is, it causes a backlash to Republicans there. Um, the question of what kinds of Democrats are going to win some of these contested races. Are they blue wave progressives or are they centrists who are going to vote very differently from the Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez core of the party. And then the question of how much, and this goes to the margin question, how much the results tonight ratify the rhetoric. Some of this very polarizing, clearly racially um, coded language or not so coded language. If those candidates who use that win, uh, that playbook is going to be kept for the next term. If they lose and lose badly, it might cause a reconsideration of that. 
few seconds left, Ben. Quickly, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, State Senate, your prediction. Senate stays Republican. U.S. Senate stays Republican. And I think the other two chambers flip to Democratic control. You? I am saying all three will go Democratic, so at least one of us will be wrong tomorrow and can have brag yeah, back. It's going to be you, rights. I think. But I want to thank our audience and the crew here at the Commons Cafe so much for joining us on this very special Max and Murphy. You still have two hours to go vote here in New York State. Go do it. Tune in to us tomorrow at 5 p.m. WBAI 99.5 FM, New York. <laughs>